Well, it's good to be here this morning, and it's good to see everyone that is here this morning. I was wondering, I was saying to Wayne earlier, this, this should have put in the gleanings about the time going ahead this time. But anyways, we're here, and that's all that matters. Amen, brother. You give me a Kleenex. You have one? I think I have one in my jacket. I take these pills, and they make my nose drip. If I bend over like that, it's not a cold, it's just <clears throat> whatever, anyways. I have prednisone and then they got me one for something else and anyways, thank you for that polymyalgia. Yes, and she's a nurse anyway, so there we are. So we're all set. So thank you and thank you for that this morning, Wayne. That's great and those songs are fit right in this morning with the message as they always do. So this morning, our scripture is Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 9, and we'll be using the New Living Translation this morning. It's the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And this scripture is meant by God to impact us with the mystery of the glorious majesty of Jesus Christ, that we are changed forever. And to help us understand what the Lord wants to reveal to us today, we must go back to Matthew chapter 16, where we find that Jesus and the disciples had arrived at Caesarea Philippi, which was just north of the Sea of Galilee on the southwest slopes of the Mount Hermon. And Jesus had retreated there after an extensive ministry in the region of Galilee, where he had encountered strong opposition from the Pharisees and Sadducees that had come up from Jerusalem. And it was here that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, verse 13, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, is? And so they said in verse 14, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them in verse 15, but who do you say I am? Now this is the most important question of your lifetime. And how you answer this question determines not only how you will live, but how you will spend eternity. And Peter answered on behalf of all of them in verse 16, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. They have been traveling with Jesus for about three years and heard his teaching and saw his many miracles. But this was not a conclusion they came to on their own. For Jesus told Peter in verse 17, <clears throat> Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Jesus then revealed in verse 21, that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leaders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. And he would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. It was the set purpose of the Father that Jesus, his own beloved Son, must die on the cross for sinners. But Peter could not accept this. 
And in verse 22, he confronts Jesus and wants no part of this negative talk of suffering and dying. Now it's Jesus' turn to confront Peter. And he says in verse 23, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Satan is always trying to get us to leave God out of the picture. And so Jesus rebuked Peter for this attitude. And Jesus affirmed that he would not be drawn away from the cross. In verses 24 to 27, Jesus insists that anyone who wants to be his follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow him. Now this is totally against man's natural desires, but it is the only reasonable way to live. Why? Because when we don't know Christ, we make choices as though there were no afterlife. In reality, this life is just the introduction to eternity. How we live this brief span determines our eternal state. Anyone that lives for the present and what they gain for themselves will find in the end that their life was a waste. When you die, all your possessions will be left behind. Living your life from an eternal perspective will find your values and decisions changing. As verse 26 says, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? <clears throat> this is something that each of us needs to keep in mind because the more we focus on the reality of that truth, the more we will live our lives for the glory of God and less for our own glory. As verse 27 says, For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Now before we look at Matthew 17 verses 1 to 9, we find the context of these verses in chapter 16, verse 28, where Jesus tells his disciples, and I tell you the truth, literally, amen. There are some standing here right now who will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In this verse, Jesus is not talking about any of his disciples seeing his second coming. He is talking about them seeing the manifestation of his coming kingdom in various events. Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 to 9 and Mark chapter 9 verses 2 to 9 and Luke chapter 9 verses 28 to 36 all tell us about the transfiguration right after they tell us about this particular statement of our Lord Jesus. And for the transfiguration itself is the first of a series of manifestations of Christ's coming kingdom and glory. It is not the only manifestation 
Only some of these disciples, three in particular, will see the manifestation of Jesus' transfiguration. But also, some of these disciples will see the manifestation of Jesus' glory in the resurrection, in the ascension, in the events at Pentecost, and in the signs and wonders that follow. All those are signs of Jesus' coming glorious kingdom. And he is saying to his disciples in verse 28, some of you will see those signs. <coughs> now, with that as an introduction, let's turn our attention to Matthew 27, or 17, sorry, verses 1 to 9. Jesus, six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. And as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly beloved Son, who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. And then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus. And as they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. This record of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ is vital to our Christian experience. And we see in this scripture that Jesus' glory is at the heart of the Christian hope. The transfiguration revealed Jesus' glory to strengthen the hope of the disciples. And we also see in the scripture that Jesus' cross and his glory cannot be separated. The way to glory is the way to the cross. And we see in our scripture text that six days passed after Jesus gave his prophecy of Matthew 16, verse 28 when he took some of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone for a time of reflection and instruction. Now why did Jesus take these three disciples with him? It was to them that he chose to reveal his glory. And so why three? The Old Testament law demanded that the truth be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And that's Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. So why Peter, James, and John? All we really know is that these three seem to make up an inner circle that Jesus often gave more instruction to. 
and who accompanied Jesus to things that the others did not, such as the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead and Jesus' last hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus didn't wish to give this revelation to everyone, just to them. And Luke tells us in his account of the story that it was to pray, Luke 9, verse 28. And Luke also tells us that the three were weary with sleep, verse 32. And so it must have been at night, dark. So imagine, imagine the scene. It was dark and quiet. They were high up on a ridge of the mountain and they were far away from anyone else. The Lord was praying and the disciples were sleeping. And it's then at that time that the vision came. And this leads us to what the three witnesses saw in verses two and three. Our text tells us that Jesus' appearance was transformed, that he was transfigured. And the Greek word here is metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis. A metamorphosis is a change on the outside that comes from the inside. When a caterpillar, for example, builds a cocoon and later emerges as a butterfly, it is due to the process of metamorphosis. Our Lord's glory was not reflected, but radiated from within. There was a change on the outside that came from within as he allowed his essential glory to shine forth. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, the sun, that is Jesus, radiates his God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Jesus radically changed before them so that his form of appearance displays the glory of his majesty. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And Mark 9 verse 3 tells us his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. And so the disciples, at night sleeping, now realize that there is a brightness radiating around them. And they woke up and saw the brightness of Christ. But that was not all. Because right after that, we read in verse 3, suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. And Luke 9, verse 31 adds, they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Departure is also translated as exodus and refers to Jesus' coming death and resurrection. Jesus would depart from this life, but he would also exodus from the grave. So why did Moses and Elijah appear? They were symbolic figureheads of the law and the prophets. Moses was the chief lawgiver, and Elijah was the head prophet of the Old Testament. And by their presence, they affirm that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and of the prophets. 
that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who came to seek and to save the lost. That everything was happening according to God's plan. And what a revelation this was of our Lord in his glory. He is what Peter said he was, the Christ, the Son of the living God. God walked on this earth in human flesh. The one who died on the cross is the theme of the scriptures. And here on this wondrous night, he revealed the splendor of his deity to his friends. And Luke 9 verse 3 explains that as Moses and Elijah were leaving, Peter begins to respond to what he was seeing. And our text records in verse 4, Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now Jesus does not give Peter an answer to his suggestion, but Luke 9 verse 33 states, Peter spoke, not realizing what he was saying. And Mark 9 verse 6 comments that Peter did not know what to say because the disciples were terrified. Peter, excuse me, was awake, but he was still responding before thinking. And as you read the Bible, one of the things you will notice is that Peter usually is the first one to step forward and blurt out something, whether it was a good idea or not. Peter had the right idea about Christ, but his timing was wrong. Peter wanted to act, but this was a time for worship and adoration. He wanted to memorialize the moment, but he was supposed to learn and move on. And while Peter was still speaking, verse 5 says, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now this was no ordinary cloud. It was a bright cloud and it seemed to encompass them and it was from the midst of this cloud that the God the Father spoke. This is my dearly beloved Son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. Now this is the second time in Matthew that we're told that the voice of the Father spoke. In chapter 3, verse 17, at Christ's baptism, he said essentially the same thing. This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. But here, however, he stresses the command, listen to him. The Father, speaking from the cloud, says the very thing that Peter confessed, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That admonition to listen to Jesus applies to us as much as it did to Peter for the very purpose of our existence and the only hope we have for both this life and for eternity is bound up in listening and following what Jesus says. Verse 6 reveals the reaction of the disciples to hearing the voice of God coming out of the cloud. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. 
Well, Jesus came and touched them in verse 7 saying, don't, or get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw Jesus only, verse 8. They had been so frightened that they had fallen down and closed their eyes. And with Jesus comforting them, they gained courage enough to open their eyes again. And only Jesus is left, and apparently no longer in his glorified state. In verse 9, as they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Jesus told Peter, James and John, not to tell anyone what they had seen until after his resurrection because Jesus knew that they didn't fully understand it and could not explain what they didn't understand. And Mark 9 verse 10 points out, so they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. <clears throat> this vision of how God works to fill his people with hope in the glorious Christ that's what this vision is all about. Now remember that six days earlier, before the transfiguration, the disciples were confused. They were wondering, what is happening? Why is our Jesus going to die? But now, after the transfiguration, they see victory. They see glory, because Jesus is revealed to them in his majesty. So Jesus as it were, is giving them a foretaste of the glory and of hope. They know that Jesus is going to die, but look at him. This is who he will be, who he is all along. And this image, this foretaste is unforgettable. They never forgot this scene. For John, writing in his gospel, John chapter 1 verse 14 said, And the Word became flesh. The Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We have seen the glory of Jesus. It's unbelievable. It's unmistakable. So that just gives a little background there to that verse. Not only John, but Peter corroborated when he said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majesty, splendor with our own eyes when he received glory and honor from God the Father. The joy, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. The first thing I want you to notice from this text <clears throat> is the priority of hope, the importance of hope. We all know that hope is vital to life. And someone has said, human beings can live for 40 days without food. Four days 
without water and four minutes without air. But we cannot live four seconds without hope. It's very difficult to live a life without hope. And as Christians, we all need hope. We all need hope because the reality is that even if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, life is hard. And therefore, God makes it a priority to fill our hearts with hope. After all, this is what the Bible calls God. Romans chapter 1, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God is called the God of love, the God of holiness, the God of justice, the God of mercy, the God of grace, but he is also called the God of hope because he's the one who gives hope and he wants you to abound in hope, not just to have a little hope, but to have great hope, overflowing hope. And let me tell you where, excuse me, where you can find hope. And it's very certain each time you go there. Where do you suppose that is? It's the Bible. Remember Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him, that is with Jesus on the holy mountain. We were there. We beheld his majesty, his glory. It was exciting. But he also said, paraphrasing verse 19, don't feel missed out, even though you were not with us on the Mount of Transfiguration. We all have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. And so Peter is saying when we go to the scriptures, we have a sure foundation to see the glorified Christ. All of us can see Christ in the Bible. And when we see Christ glorified, the majestic Christ, it fills us with hope. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says, Such things were in the scriptures long ago to teach us, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So if you are struggling in life, if you are depressed, dejected, and you're trying to find hope somewhere, it's right with you. It's called the Word of God. And when you read the Word of God, read it to see Jesus. We need to see Jesus because it's the vision of Jesus in the Scriptures that fills us with hope. The hope that is not about the here and now, but about the life to come. The confident expectation of all future good God has promised in Christ Jesus. According to the Bible, when you follow Jesus, you will have sufferings in this lifetime. But if you really follow Jesus, you will realize 
it is all worth it. Because as Paul says in Romans 8 verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And there's an article I read that's appropriate for today. <clears throat> it says everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. So when we say everything will be okay, it's not having short-term vision as if every problem here and now is solved. But the end here refers to the time that Jesus returns in glory and we join him in his glory. And it is that point in time where everything will be okay. The hope of the Christian is not short-term in life here and now. The hope of a Christian is that confident expectation in that time when Jesus returns. And when he returns, he brings us to a place where everything will be okay. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, which we had studied a while ago, should make you excited and joyous, looking forward to that time where there will be no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, for Christ has conquered all. It's that vision of the glorious Christ when he comes again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, so, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. And shall we bow in prayer? Father God, sometimes life is hard, and it is easy for us Father, to be trapped in our own darkness and sadness and disappointments. And so we pray, Father God, that in our times of darkness, that you would shine glorious hope in our hearts. Not because we know that you are always going to turn every immediate circumstance the, the way we want but because we know that Jesus wins and Jesus will return. That is what we need, Father. We know everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. And help us, Father, to be patient, to be faithful, to be watching, to be serving. May the hope of the night vision of Jesus, your son, that you want to fill our hearts with, inspire us, Father, to effective discipleship to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I ask that you would bless each one of us. Show us Christ. And we thank you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to end our <clears throat> this morning the morning was, well, anyway 
with a song by Stuart Townsend. <laughs> 